a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hi there, and welcome to the show. Whether you are a, uh, you know, first-time wrong thinker or a veteran wrong thinker, you have found the place where we daily offer some challenges to the prevailing narratives. Why? Because there's a big difference between narrative and reality. And some of us prefer to live our lives based in reality, even if that reality can be, uh, shall we say, uncomfortable at times. I don't know. There's something there's something that's strangely comforting about basically owning your own worldview and not being dependent on a bunch of uh, blow-dried, highly paid spinmeisters to tell you what to think. Nonetheless, welcome to the show. We've got a lot of great stuff to talk about. Our sponsors include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com. This is a sponsor I would really encourage you to check out. You know, even if you have a great food storage program and you're just thinking, maybe I want to fill in a few gaps here and there, Click on the link provided in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com, and I promise you can find some things that will help bring you peace of mind and confidence to face an uncertain future. Also, thanks to pure-light.com, hslammo.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Well, let's jump right in. That whole difference between narrative and reality, I swear it's getting more important by the moment. Case in point. You remember hearing about that plot last year to kidnap the governor of Michigan? I mean, it's been a centerpiece of proof that anti-government extremism is, in fact, our greatest threat in America. Now, it's not the first time we've seen pretty crazy things like this come up. And, oh, my goodness, another militia is planning anti-government violence. And these guys actually were going to kidnap and try the governor of Michigan because they were upset with her lockdown policies. I mean, it makes for some pretty good, uh, you know, press. It makes it makes for a lot of uh, frantic headlines. And, you know, Maxine Waters can hold forth. This is the kind of thing that we're talking about. This is why we have to crack down on domestic extremism and white supremacy and blah, 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 blah. Okay, so there's the narrative. There's the danger. But as usual, you leave it to a real, or I should say an authentic journalist like Glenn Greenwald, and suddenly that narrative starts to come apart like a soup sandwich. Because the idea of kidnapping the governor came from the FBI, not the people that it was trying to entice into joining the plot. This is from an article published on AntiEmpire.com. And again, this is the great Glenn Greenwald. He says, the narrative that domestic anti-government extremism is the greatest threat to U.S. national security, by the way, the official position of the U.S. security state and Biden administration, received its most potent boost in October 2020, less than one month before the presidential election. That's when the FBI and Michigan state officials announced the arrest of 13 people on terrorism conspiracy and weapons charges with six of them accused of participating in a plot to kidnap Michigan's Democratic governor Gretchen Whitmer who'd been a particular target of criticism from President Trump for her advocacy for harsh COVID lockdown measures 
Now, the headline that's, headlines that followed were dramatic and fear-inducing. The FBI says Michigan anti-government group plotted to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer, announced the New York Times. That same night, ABC News began its broadcast this way. Tonight we take you into a hidden world, a place authorities say gave birth to a violent domestic terror plot in Michigan, foiled by the FBI. Glenn Greenwald says Democrats and liberal journalists instantly seized on this storyline to spin a pre-election theme that was as extreme as it was predictable. Governor Whitmer herself blamed Trump, claiming that the plotters heard the president's words not as a rebuke, but as a rallying cry, as a call to action. Oh, she's a victim. (laughs) Representative Maxine Waters claimed the president is a deranged lunatic and he's inspired white supremacists to violence, the latest of which was a plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer. Adding these groups have attempted to kill many of us in recent years. They are following Trump's lead. Vox's paid television watcher and video manipulator Aaron Rupar drew this inference. Trump hasn't commended the FBI for breaking up the Whitmer kidnapping murder plot because, as always, he doesn't want to denounce his base. Michael Moore called for Trump's arrest for having incited the kidnapping plot against Governor Whitmer. One viral tweet from a popular Democratic Party activist simply declared, Trump should be arrested for this plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer. There's no doubt he inspired this terrorism. Oh, and New York Governor Andrew Cuomo instantly declared it to be a terrorist attack on America. We must condemn and call out the cowardly plot against Governor Whitmer for what it is, domestic terrorism. MSNBC's social media star Kyle Griffin cast it as a coup attempt. The FBI thwarted what they described as a plot to violently overthrow the government and kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Wow. CNN's Jim Sudo pronounced it uh, deeply alarming. I mean, talk about a one-note symphony. A lengthy CNN article dressed up as an investigative expose that was little more than stenography of FBI messaging disseminated from behind a shield of anonymity purported in the headline to take the reader inside the plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer. It claimed that it all began when angry discussions about COVID restrictions spiraled into a terrorism plot. Officials say, with Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer the target of a kidnapping scheme. Now, CNN heralded the FBI's use of informants and agents to break up the plot, but depicted them as nothing more than passive bystanders reporting what the domestic terrorists were plotting. This is how they put it. The watchman had been flagged to the FBI in March, and one of its members was now an informant. That informant, others on the inside, as well as undercover operatives and recordings, allowed the Bureau to monitor what was happening from then on. But Glenn Greenwald says the article never once hinted at, let alone described, the highly active role of these informants and agents themselves in encouraging and designing the plot. Instead, it depicted these anti-government activists as leading one another on their own to commit what CNN called treason in a quaint town. The more honest headline for this CNN article would have been inside the FBI's tale of the plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer. But since CNN never questions the FBI, they employ their top agents and operatives once they leave the Bureau in order to disseminate their propaganda. This is what the country got from the most trusted name in news. (laughs) Now, Governor Whitmer herself attempted to prolong the news cycle as much as possible, all but declaring herself off limits from criticism by equating, equating any critiques of her governance with incitement to terrorism. Well, that's handy. 
Appearing on Meet the Press two Sundays after the plot was revealed, Whitmer said, It was incredibly disturbing that the President of the United States, 10 days after a plot to kidnap, put me on trial, and execute me, 10 days after that was uncovered, the President is at it again and inspiring and incentivizing and inciting this kind of domestic terrorism. So on October 22nd, just two weeks before Election Day, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow hosted Whitmer and told the Michigan governor that the evidence was clear that Trump had been turning on a faucet of violent threats against her. Whitmer agreed that Trump was to blame for the kidnapping plot by repeatedly having attacked her in his rallies. Joe Biden also made extreme use of the or repeated use of the storyline, uh, appearing at a campaign rally in Michigan on October 16th. The Democratic candidate blasted Trump for the crime of continuing to criticize Whitmer even after she was the target of a terror plot. He explicitly blamed Trump for having incited it. When the president tweeted, liberate Michigan, liberate Michigan, that's the call that was heard. That was the dog whistle. And he accused Trump of purposely stroking a wave of the worst kind of terrorism on U.S. soil. It's the sort of behavior you might expect from ISIS, he said of the accused. Now, that's a lot of lot of heavy breathing, a lot of breathlessness there. Yet from the start, Glenn Greenwald points out there were ample and potent reasons to distrust the FBI's version of events. To begin with, FBI press releases are typically filled with lies, yet media outlets due to some combination of excessive gullibility and inability to learn lessons or a desire to be deceived continue to treat them as gospel. For another, the majority of terror plots the FBI claimed to detect and break up during the first war on terror were, in fact, plots manufactured, funded, and driven by the FBI itself. Indeed, the FBI has previously acknowledged that its own powers and budget depend on keeping Americans in fear of such attacks. Former FBI Assistant Director Thomas Fuentes, in a documentary called The Newberg Sting about a 2009 FBI arrest of four men on terrorism charges, had a very candid admission about it. We're going to come back to that in just a few moments because we are flat up against the break. But are you starting to see the picture here? Sometimes the people in authority are, shall we say, a little less uh, than uh, faithful to the truth. And the monsters that uh, the FBI is taking credit for saving us from turn out to have been monsters of their own creation. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. I'm sharing with you an article from Glenn Greenwald. And I'm just going to confess, this is one of the very few journalistic voices out there that I actually trust. And it's not because I believe he is infallible, but I just, I have seen more concerted effort for him to just tell the facts free of judgment, free of labels than, than any other reporter that I can think of. And when he says, you know, this whole idea of the, the plot of kidnapping uh, Governor Whitmer of Michigan back in October, that was an FBI creation. And one of the craziest admissions comes from former FBI Assistant Director Thomas Fuentes in a documentary called The Newberg Sting 
about a 2009 FBI arrest of four men on terrorism charges. Listen to this extremely candid admission. Quote, if you're submitting budget proposals for a law enforcement agency, for an intelligence agency, you're not going to submit the proposal that we won the war on terror and everything's great. Because the first thing that's going to happen is your budget's going to be cut in half. You know, it's my opposite of Jesse Jackson's keep hope alive. It's keep fear alive. Keep it alive. End quote. Yeah, that's that's pretty candid. All right. Greenwald says in the Whitmer kidnapping case, the FBI's own affidavit in support of the charges acknowledged the involvement in the plot of both informants and undercover FBI agents over several months. And by the way, his article includes screenshots from the actual documents telling us the FBI relied on information provided by confidential human sources and undercover employees over several months. In some, there was no way to avoid suspicions about the FBI's crucial role in a plot like this, absent extreme ignorance about the Bureau's behavior over the last two decades, or an intentional desire to sow fear about right-wing extremists attacking Democratic Party officials one month before the 2020 presidential election. In fact, the signs of FBI involvement were there from the start, for those who, unlike CNN, wanted to know the truth. A reporter from the Detroit Free Press, published just two days after CNN's FBI stenography, noted that FBI agents were incapable of identifying any specifics of this supposed plot, adding that defense attorneys were adamant that those accused were merely engaged in idle chatter, boasting that they were never really serious about following through. Then the paper added that for defense lawyers, it remains to be seen what roles the undercover informants and FBI agents played in the case and whether they pushed the others into carrying out the plan. Meanwhile, an actually independent journalist, Michael Tracy, had no trouble identifying the telltale signs of FBI orchestration that were so apparent countless times during the first war on terror. Three days before the CNN story, he wrote, Looks like very elaborate long-term use of numerous FBI informants in that alleged Michigan militia plot. But Greenwald says the value of depicting Trump as having incited a frightening terrorist attack just weeks before the election and the zeal to feed the broader narrative pushed by the U.S. security state that anti-government extremism is America's greatest national security threat drowned out any skepticism. The storyline was clear and unquestioned. Trump was inciting ISIS-like terrorism on U.S. soil and right-wing extremists who would fester even after Trump was done were the primary menace that requires new domestic powers and larger budgets in order to defeat. Yet, just as happened with so many other narratives, from the origins of COVID to Hunter Biden's corrupt use of his ties to his father, Trump's defeat means the media is now willing to reconsider some of the propaganda that was pushed in the lead-up to the election. An excellent piece of investigative journalism published by BuzzFeed on Tuesday documents that far from being passive observers of the plot, FBI informants and agents were the key drivers of it. Quote, an examination of the case by BuzzFeed News also reveals that some of those informants acting under the direction of the FBI played a far larger role than has previously been imported, reported rather, working in secret they did more than just passively observe and report on the actions of suspects. Instead, they had a hand in nearly every aspect of the alleged plot, 
starting with its inception. The extent of their involvement raises questions as to whether there would have even been a conspiracy without them. End quote. So central to this plot were those acting at the behest of the FBI that many of the accused plotters only met each other because of meetings arranged at the direction of the FBI, who targeted them based on social media postings and other political activities suggesting anti-government or anti-Whitmer sentiments that could be exploited. This is another uh, quote here, I believe from BuzzFeed, longtime government informant from Wisconsin, for example, helped organize a series of meetings around the country where many of the alleged plotters first met one another and the earliest notions of a plan took root. Now, some of the people are saying this. The Wisconsin informant even paid for some hotel rooms and food as an incentive to get people to come. Now, Glenn Greenwald says one of the FBI's informants, a former Iraq war soldier, became so deeply enmeshed in a Michigan, or I'm sorry, a Michigan militant group that he rose to become its second in command. That's the FBI informant, remember? With his leadership role in one of the key groups, all while acting under the direction of the FBI, he was encouraging members to collaborate with other potential suspects and paying for their transportation to meetings. Indeed, he even prodded the alleged mastermind of the kidnapping plot to advance his plan and then baited the trap that led to the arrest. Now, Greenwald says a review of not only the BuzzFeed reporting, but also the underlying court documents, leaves little doubt that the primary impetus for this plot came over and over from the FBI. On July 12th, a lawyer for one of the defendants filed a motion asking the court to compel the FBI to turn over all chats which their agents and informants had involving the plot. He did so on the ground that the few chats they had obtained themselves from their own clients repeatedly show the FBI pushing and prodding its agents to over and over to lure defendants into more meetings, to join in more recon exercises, and to take as many steps as possible toward the plot. So while it was clear from the start that there were FBI informants and agents in the middle of all this, it turns out that at least half of those involved were acting on FBI orders, 12 informants and agents. Now, as BuzzFeed says, those acting at the behest of the FBI had a hand in nearly every aspect of the alleged plot, starting with its inception. All of that, concluded the reporters, raises questions as to whether there could have even been a conspiracy without them. But Greenwald says this evidence doesn't so much raise that question as much as it answers it. The idea of kidnapping Governor Whitmer came from the FBI. It was a plot designed by the agency. And they then went on to hunt on the hunt to target people they believed they could manipulate into joining the plot. Either people were easily manipulated due to psychological weakness, financial vulnerability, and or their strongly held political views. In sum, the FBI devised this plot, was the primary organizer of it, funded it, purposely directed their targets to pose for incriminating pictures that they then released to the press and then heaped praise on themselves for stopping what they themselves had created. Now, this is not new. And if you've been paying attention to what the FBI has been up to over the last 20 or 30 years, you'll understand. Many plots have been created by, driven by, and would not have happened without the FBI's own planning, funding, and direction. I'll let you pick up what's left of the article from there. It's very well researched, very well sourced, tons of links that you can follow to see if Glenn Greenwald is is dealing with you straight. 
I really like the fact that this guy is willing to speak out. And he takes brickbats from a lot of different sides of the political spectrum. Check out the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com and you'll find this link to uh, this article from Glenn Greenwald. The idea of kidnapping Governor Whitmer came from the FBI. I'm just saying the next time you hear about somebody being accused or being arrested for anti-government activities... Ask yourself, were there any government informants involved? In fact, let's talk about January 6th sometime. How many FBI informants or otherwise uh, agitators were involved in that? I think we're still waiting for answers. But will we ever get them? Time will tell. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, welcome back to the show. I can't tell you how happy it makes me that uh, that you have found this little broadcast. I never have any clue how many people actually uh, have found it, and for that matter, how many people continue to listen, but I will tell you this. I give you my best efforts every day. My heart is 100% in sharing this information, and, and I want to emphasize the stuff I share is never done out of a desire for how can I help make you angry or how can I upset you today? How can I make you fearful? And, and this is a tough balance. I, I I don't want to sound like poor me, but I want you to understand that sometimes it feels like there's, there's a tightrope that I'm walking here. I want to talk about the things that are going on that I believe are, are worth noting, worth paying attention to. And frankly, some of those things are not, uh, you know, good news. Some of these are hard facts to face. But my goal always, 100% of the time, is to present that information in a way that it provides perspective. Whether you agree with it or not, it's just, you know, this is broadening your, your overall view of what's going on. But it's also helping you better understand what's happening and, and helping you be more sure of who you are and what you stand for than you were before. As opposed to just simply getting you riled up and then, you know, getting you wound up now. Go (laughs) take it out on take it out on your dog or whatever the case may be. I I came across an article from uh, the incredible Lawrence W. Reed, and I guess uh, there was there was a little bit of an an anniversary of sorts that uh, that came about. This was was very surprising to me, but uh, apparently let me see when he wrote this. This was uh, yeah, this was just published yesterday. And he says, today marks an infamous centennial. It was on July 21st, 1921, 100 years ago. Adolf Hitler assumed the leadership of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, better known as the Nazis, and it became his vehicle to power. And I know people kind of have a knee-jerk reaction, you know, whenever, you know, anytime you mention Hitler, oh, Godwin's laws, somebody's reduced to arguing you're like Hitler. But I want you to hear the case that Lawrence W. Reed makes in what the Nazis had in common with every other collectivist regime in the 20th century. One of the reasons to understand this is because you got a bunch of little uh, neo-commies running around dressed in black block and threatening to bash the fash, you know, punch anybody in the face who doesn't agree with them, who claim they are fighting Nazis. Everybody who disagrees with us is Nazis. But the ideology to which they've attached themselves 
is just as bloody, just as concentrated on spurning the rights of the individual as anything that Hitler came up with. They don't realize that they're ideological blood brothers. Here's what Lawrence Reed has to say. He says, note the formal official name of the party. It was not the National Capitalist German Workers' Party. It was not the National Free Market German Workers' Party, nor was it the National Christian German Workers' Party. Yet a century later, claims that Nazis were capitalist or Christian or both, though preposterous, are still occasionally heard. Though Hitler quoted scripture early in his career when it was politically convenient, by the way, he lied often, incidentally, he also said the Bible was a fairy tale invented by the Jews. He appointed many vehement anti-Christians to high office, arrested, jailed, tortured, killed many priests and pastors, denied Jesus was a Jew, even ordered a new Bible stripped of all references to Jews and Jewish history. Balder von Schirach, head of the Hitler Youth, certainly got the memo. The destruction of Christianity was explicitly recognized as a purpose of the National Socialist Movement, he said, and noted in evi- as noted in evidence produced at the Nuremberg Trials and in this video, which is linked in the article. In a story on the Nazi Bible, London's Daily Mail reported, Hitler admired the ceremony and majesty of the church, and he admitted as much in Mein Kampf, but hated its teachings, which had no place in his vision of Germanic supermen ruling lesser races, devoid of outdated concepts such as mercy and love. But he knew the power of the church in Germany, and even he could not banish it overnight. He was even forced to abandon the systematic murder of the handicapped and the insane before the war when outspoken bishops began to speak against it. Instead, his plan was to gradually Nazify the church, beginning with a theological center he set up in 1939 to rewrite the Holy Bible. Now, in the real Bible, Lawrence Reed points out, Matthew 7.16 famously declares, By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? What Hitler and Nazism produced, genocide, warfare, state control, and endless evil in many forms, constitutes the very antithesis of the teachings of Jesus. The lie that Nazism was capitalist instead of what the Nazis themselves said it was, namely socialist, derives from the fact that the Hitler regime did not engage in wholesale or widespread nationalization of businesses. In the Third Reich, you might retain legal title to a factory, But if you did not do as the Nazis ordered, you would be, shall we say, dispatched. Writing in his magnum opus, Human Action, Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises explained, Nazism was socialism under the outward guise of the terminology of capitalism. He said, quote, The second pattern of socialism, we may call it the Hindenburg or German pattern, nominally and seemingly preserves private ownership of the means of production and keeps the appearance of ordinary markets, prices, wages, and interest rates. There are, however, no longer entrepreneurs, but only shop managers. These shop managers are seemingly instrumental in the conduct of the enterprises entrusted to them. They buy and sell, hire and discharge workers, and remunerate their services, contract debts and pay interest and amortization. But in all their activities, they are bound to obey unconditionally the orders issued by the government's supreme office of production management. This office tells the shop managers what and how to produce, at what prices and from whom to buy, at what prices and to whom to sell. It assigns every worker his job and fixes his wages. It decrees to whom and on what terms the capitalists must entrust their funds. 
Market exchange is merely a sham. All the wages, prices, and interest rates are fixed by the government. They are wages, prices, and interest rates in appearance only. In fact, they are merely quantitative terms in the government's orders determining each citizen's job, income, consumption, and standard of living. The government directs all production activities. The shop managers are subject to the government, not the consumer's demand, and the market's price structure. End quote. Now, Lawrence Reed says, does that look like capitalism to any thoughtful, honest person with no agenda but the truth? Hardly. In fact, he once wrote that Lenin, Mao, Pol Pot, Castro, Hitler, and Mussolini, they were all anti-capitalist peas in the same socialist collectivist pod. They all claimed to be socialists. They all sought to concentrate power in the state and to glorify the state. They all stomped on individuals who wanted nothing more than to pursue their own ambitions in peaceful commerce. They all denigrated private property, either by outright seizure or by relegating it to serve the purposes of the state. Now, Michael Reiger argues that some of the confusion about how to label Nazi economics stems from socialism's ever-shifting varieties. Socialists are are notorious rather for claiming this is it, when they're just writing or daydreaming about it and then claiming that that wasn't it when it flops. Reiger writes, the wide variance between utopian socialism, communism, national socialism, and democratic socialism makes it remarkably easy for members of each ideology to wag their fingers at the others and say, that wasn't real socialism. However, there is one common thread in all of these definitions of socialism. From St. Simon to AOC, all self-described socialists have shared the belief that top-down answers to society's problems are superior to the bottom-up answers created by the free market. Rather than admit that Nazism was socialist and disastrous, diehard socialists just declare, well, that wasn't socialism. It would be more honest if they just said, oops. But they typically react the same way in vehement denial to failed socialist experiments everywhere from the Soviet Union to Venezuela. Fee's director of content, Dan Sanchez, generated numerous affirmations when he recently tweeted this, quote, cases of socialism they don't like, not true socialism. Cases of capitalism they do like, not true capitalism. Socialists always lose on economics, so they try to win with wordplay. Think about this. Here's a quote. This is from Adolf Hitler in a 1931 interview with Richard Brighting. Quote, the good of the community takes priority over that of the individual, but the state should retain control. Every owner should feel himself to be an agent of the state. It is his duty not to misuse his possessions to the detriment of the state or the interests of his fellow countrymen. That is the overriding point. The Third Reich will always retain the right to control property owners. That's as socialist as it gets, says Larry Reed. So a century ago, a megalomaniac began his rise to political power. The world suffered unspeakable catastrophe at the hands of that very anti-Christian, anti-capitalist monster. And the warning here is don't be gullible or foolish enough to suggest that he was otherwise. Man, I'll tell you, Larry Reed is a gem. And I do have a link to his article in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Stick around. we got some more great stuff to talk about just the other side of these commercial messages. Be right back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Before I go too much further, just want to give a quick shout out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They are an equal housing opportunity lender. I thought I would tell you that. I was on the phone yesterday with a friend of mine who is a commercial realtor in southern Utah. And he was describing to me just how crazy the market has been. Not just, you know, commercial realty, but residential realty. Man, homes go on the market and they are sold so quickly. What this means is if you are moving, for instance, to Utah, I only say to the, to the state of Utah because uh, Patriot Home Mortgage can help you anywhere in the state of Utah, and the Heather Turner team is your best bet. You've got to make sure you've got your financing in order because you cannot dilly-dally. Homes don't stay on the market for days, sometimes even hours. They're snapped up quickly. So if you need to get that loan in a very timely fashion, Every I dotted, every T crossed, count on the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. You can visit their office at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George or call 435-703-4522. couple different things I want to touch on in this final segment of this hour. Uh, first of all, there's a great article from John Stossel. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this one, but... Um, The relaxing of prohibitions on marijuana has provided some of the best illustration of how the free market is actually superior to state-run central planning. And John Stossel has written an article that shows how some states, when they say, well, we're going to go ahead and legalize marijuana, you know, for this, for medical or for recreational or whatever, they nonetheless impose so many rules that effectively what they do is they end up creating their own drug cartels. Yeah, I know. The temptation must be there because they're like, well, people want it. They're willing to pay money for it. How do I get a cut of it? When I was living in Utah, I actually watched this with, you know, legislators in that state who, you know, adamantly, we cannot legalize marijuana even for for medicinal purposes, even under the direction of a doctor. We can't do it. We can't do it. And then it was remarkable how some of them changed their tunes and said, you know, actually, maybe this is not a bad idea, and uh, it's something we should look at. And lo and behold, you have medical marijuana dispensaries in the state of Utah. Oh, and by some amazing, miraculous coincidence, some of those legislators have invested in these dispensaries. So their opposition wasn't really, we're trying to protect the public. We're just trying to keep, you know, the the flood of drugs and these gateway drugs out of people's hands. That wasn't their concern at all. They just wanted to know, hey, how am I going to get a cut of this? And once it was legally clear for them to get a cut of it, oh, they're all in. I know. I feel a little bit cynical even for pointing it out, but it's, this is human nature. This is, this is why when someone has power, Don't be too surprised if they use that power to, you know, prop themselves up, even if it comes, you know, at the expense of a few flip-flops here and there. I'm not saying that they should have been consistent and just maintained prohibition all along, but it kind of makes you wonder, was the only reason they were maintaining this because they weren't benefiting from it personally? Because it kind of looks that way. So I'm going to leave that in the show notes. You can check it out for yourself, a link to John Stossel's article. Find it at thebrianhydeshow.com. These are the show notes for July 30th. The Centers for Disease Control, though, I want to talk a little bit about them because right now they are in crisis 
people don't believe them. And when I say people, I mean not just people like me who are questioning stuff, but even CNN is like, uh... Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, what is going on, CDC, with, with your mind, making up your mind about masks? Jeffrey Tucker has an excellent article. I recommend, actually, I recommend pretty much anything he writes COVID-related because he has been one of the very few and principled voices of reason out there who's been willing to actually do the homework and dig in and, and research things for himself. And I like his take here about how the CDC is exercising arbitrary power while vandalizing science. Jeffrey Tucker says, I'm still trying to wrap my brain around the astonishing shift from the CDC on Tuesday, July 27th. It's not just that the CDC is re-recommending masks for people indoors in many parts of the country, which could include your neighborhood or not. And this could change tomorrow. Right now, he says it disproportionately affects red states, but whether and to what extent you protect yourself from disease with a paper strapped to your mouth and nose is now wholly contingent on data reporting and interpretation. His point is it might feel like science, but it has a better name, arbitrary power. Out with the Constitution, out of traditions of law, out with legislatures, and out with the will of the people. But what's even stranger was the rationale that the CDC cited to claim that the Delta variant renders the vaccines, you know, the ones that have been hyped with unrelenting propaganda for many months, including stigmatization and demonization of those who refuse, substantially less effective for stopping infection than President Biden was touting just last week. He says our thinking on the subject is supposed to mutate at the same pace as the virus itself. It's exhausting and it triggers anyone's BS detector. How in the world does the CDC expect anyone to believe anything it says in the future? Now, to be sure, the claim that breakthrough infections, PCR positives and vaccinated individuals might be more common than thought could, in fact, be true. In fact, he says, I tend to think it is. It's a general principle of immunology that for viruses that mutate quickly, inoculation cannot always keep up as an infection preventive. And he says, this is one reason that these fields have for the better part of a hundred years observed that natural immunity is to be preferred if that's an option. It's safer and more globally effective for pathogens that are mild for most people, which is exactly what the science is pointlessly showing yet again now. Vaccines are glorious for stable viruses like measles and smallpox, but less comprehensively effective for flus and coronaviruses, which is saying nothing controversial. For example, a study from Houston, Texas, shows the Delta variant is more transmissible than the wild type or other mutations. Delta variants caused a significantly higher rate of vaccine breakthrough cases, 19.7% compared to 5.8% for all other variants. And yet there are fewer hospitalizations and deaths, which is another point for traditional virus theory. As a rule of thumb, these pathogens are more prevalent but less severe. We've long known that, or at least we did until 2020 when we decided to scrap a century's worth of public health wisdom. Now, there's a rumor out there, and that's all it is, that the CDC is relying on some study out of India that demonstrates that the Delta variant outwits the vaccine. But the study in question pertains to a vaccine not available in the U.S., has not been peer-reviewed, and was even withdrawn from preprint status, so there's no way to check the findings or the data behind them. There are by now more than 100,000 pieces of science out there related to COVID, and they are public. But the one on which the CDC is rumored to follow, that's not available. Huh. 
And where it gets interesting is that when a CDC spokesman was asked for the science behind the mandate, we're not talking about masking here, but the basic claim that the Delta tends to make an end run around vaccines, the person said it wasn't published, as if that were completely normal. What does this mean? Well, only Anthony Fauci, Rochelle Walensky, and other big shots at the government to have access? That millions of other scientists around the world can't even have access to check out to make sure the science is sound? And from the interpretation of a small cabal inside some bureaucracy comes the law of the land? See, Jeffrey Tucker's pointing out here a critical principle of science is peer review, and that requires sharing study results that you claim to be definitive. And if you don't do that, people have every reason to dismiss your claims. In the decades since the Internet, we've seen an ever more intense push to get those journals from behind paywalls and make them publicly available for greater accountability and better scientific progress. He says, in fact, open science works. A perfect example has been shown this past year when members of the public, including this writer, have enjoyed access to all the science pouring out daily and happen to take note of how completely screwed up policy has been in light of the actual evidence. There's zero evidence of a relationship between lockdowns and disease mitigation. Zero credible evidence that masks cause a change in virus trajectory. Zero evidence that any of all this, any of this wreckage of our liberties and rights has been worth it in any case. Among many other revelations, thanks to open science. But now we have the CDC making a massive change in the lives of Americans, mandating a piece of clothing around our faces, but flat out refusing to cite the science behind the claims. Isn't that something? The Biden administration is toying with tactics and strategies for disease control that have utterly and completely failed for the 18 months, 16 months, that they've been tried everywhere in the world. The science as we know it conclusively demonstrates the failure of every bit of the lockdown agenda. And yet here we are, threatened by another round on all sides. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. Please feel free to check it out. You can go to the com. Hey, while you're there, do me a favor, click on the links to my sponsors. Particularly, I'd like you to click on the link to lifesavingfoods.com. I know there are a few things that we can do to solve the grand problems of the world, but the one thing you can do is shore up your own situation and make sure that you can be as self-reliant as possible. Lifesavingfoods.com can sure help you in that direction. This is The Brian Hyde Show.